0: Well, welcome to The Vine. If you're joining us online for the first time, it's so great that you guys are with us. And uh, we've got people joining in from all over the world uh, every single week, and even here in Hong Kong as well. So um, we just uh, bless you. Thank you for joining us as part of our kind of diaspora community all over the world. We're so grateful that you're with us. Uh, And everybody in this room, welcome here. And uh, you might be new to The Vine, and we recognize um, that um, some of you have joined us since we started the service. And we always welcome people right at the start of the service. So I want to re-welcome you if you're new. And never been to the Vine before. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's great to have you with us. I'm so excited about baptisms. Uh, amazing 15 candidates where you are. You're all scattered around the room here. I'm so excited about that. If you've got nothing to do for your lunch, I can't recommend more highly than Repulse Bay at 2 o'clock uh, to witness uh, 15 people uh, going down into the waters of baptism. We always joke here at the Vine. We do our baptisms in Repulse Bay Beach. It's public. Uh, And we always joke, it's the only baptism in the world where you go down clean and come up dirty. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's true. I've done many baptisms in Repubble's Way. I remember this one time. Can I tell you a quick story? It's got nothing to do with what I want to preach about, but I'm going to tell you a quick story. (laughs) This one time, uh, I'm there with our group, right? And we have like four groups. And I turn to the left, and I kid you not, there's a poo floating Like, I kid you not, like, like literally like five meters away from us. And so I'm like, we're doing like the intro for this person in front of everybody. And I'm like backwashing the. <laughs> and we like dunk them. And I'm like keeping an eye, bring them back up. Anyway, so we get through all the candidates whilst the poo's floating like five minutes away. And afterwards, I like sort of just gently kind of go out to like, um, and it was classic. It wasn't poo. Uh, it was like, like a bunch of like chocolate like all gathered together like that. And, okay, anyway. So, um, so look forward to your baptisms, by the way, if you're getting baptized today. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for the mercies of God. Um, hey, I'm excited. I, I want to do a, a one-off message uh, today on the topic of giving your finances to the church. Yeah, I know. For uh, Some of you are like, really, I showed up for this Sunday? (laughs) Um, You know, in eight eight years of being your senior pastor, uh, in 12 years of being a full-time pastor here at the Vine, in 25 years of preaching, I have never preached a message specifically on this topic of giving financially. To your local church, and um, I I almost feel a bit derelict in my pastoral duties to you of never teaching on this topic. We've talked about generosity here. We've talked about finances here at the Vine, but the specific idea of giving your money to church is not something we've we've taught on. And I want to be honest with you right up front and just confess the reality that I think I've stayed away from the topic um, out of fear. You know, out of the fear that the topic would come out in such a way or could get twisted in such a way that you would feel manipulated or or coerced into giving to the church. And, you know, I, I think the global church has done a relatively poor job over the years of teaching on this topic. And therefore, uh, so often people kind of feel a sense of guilt or, or a, f- a sense of shame when this topic comes up. Um, and, uh, and I just wanted to kind of confess to you that there's a certain amount of fear in me. And I think that's why I've kind of stayed away from the topic. Um, there's also something else. There's a, a sense of biasness in me, if you will. A, a sense of conflict of interest bringing this topic to you. Because the, the reality is my, myself and my wife, we make our full-time income, our full-time livelihood off of your generosity, off of your giving to the vine. So you literally, your, your giving here literally puts clothes on my back, it puts food on my table, it educates my daughter. My whole life uh, is driven by your, your generous giving to the vine. And so if there was ever a topic where I'm tempted to preach really well to get a good result out of, it's this topic, right? So I, I just realize that there's this bias and conflict of interest. And I just want to be really honest with you right up front about that. And I want to commit to you right at the start of this message... Um, that I'm gonna I'm gonna preach this based on Scripture without fear or favor, okay? Without fear or favor. The other thing I want to be just really conscious of is that the timing of this message is a little bit suspect. If you've been coming to the Vine for the last four or five months, you'll realize that we have been struggling somewhat financially. In fact, since June of this year, uh, we've been in a deficit every single month. That deficit has either been anywhere from between about 500,000 Hong Kong dollars to about 1.2 million Hong Kong dollars each month. And we obviously can only sustain our our life and our our ministry in the church for a certain period of time when we're in a deficit like that every month. And that concerns me. And I think it should concern all of us. If this is your home church and if this is where you come, I think that's a shared responsibility for us and a shared thing that should concern us us. Um, But I want to just recognize that the timing of this is also a little bit suspect. Does that make sense? Um, And I'm not going to, again, make an excuse for that. I'm going to teach into this because I think we need to teach into it here at The Vine. We did a survey with you guys uh, a few months ago, and we asked you a whole bunch of different questions in that survey. But one of the questions we asked you was, if you consider The Vine your home church, do you regularly give money to The Vine? And 70% of you, 70% of you said you did. Uh, which means 30% of you said you did not. And I want to just honor and just just um, kind of speak to the 70% in this room and those that are online right now as well. Um, we want to thank you uh, for your generosity, for the way in which you stand behind this church. Um, this church is a, a very generous church over all the well, 25 plus years of our existence here in Hong Kong. And I know I can look around this room and I can see faces in this room of people that have been in the vine for a long period of time. And people that have generously and faithfully stood with us. So I just want to honor that 70%. I want to also honor and recognize that 30%. And I want to say this right up front. No judgment at all on that 30%. We recognize that there are many reasons why people uh, are not in a position or people do not bring their tithes into the church. And so um, we recognize that things have been challenging in this season of life and here in Hong Kong. And so we also honor, we we recognize, we see also the 30% of you in this room. Now, I want to be clear about this. My message today is not to get the 30% to give and it's not to make the 70% feel good about yourselves. Are you with me? My message is not designed at all to do that. I want to actually speak a message that's to all of us. I want to speak about the importance of what we do with our finances To all of us, because I believe it's important for all of us. And I believe also that I think we can very easily get trapped under faulty thinking and I would argue faulty guilt and faulty shame when it comes to this reality of our finances and particularly in giving to the local church. And so um, I want to bring this message to you today to all of us because I think it's relevant that we all wrestle with this topic more and more and ask ourselves personally some pretty important and I think some pretty exciting and liberating questions that's what i want to do is that okay so um If we're going to talk a little bit about giving money to a church, we have to talk about this concept of of tithing. And so I want to spend a little bit of time up front just just kind of addressing the reality of tithing and helping you to understand it. Because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings around it, a lot of things that I think um, can distract us on this topic. So um, the concept of tithing is first introduced in Scripture in the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And it's important that you understand this because um, it's an important time of when God is actually shaping and building His people to be a people that can represent his heart to the world. And so uh, Leviticus comes obviously right there at the beginning of scripture in uh, the Pentateuch, but it comes right at the time that God's people have received their liberation from the Exodus. Now, this is important because in in the time before the Exodus, God's people are in slavery. Slaves do not earn money. The literal definition of a slave is that there is absolutely no income. You're a slave to something, and you have to serve something else. And God has now liberated his people from a place of slavery, brought them into a place of freedom. And that freedom would mean that they have now the ability to earn and to receive income and to receive material goods. And that's a good thing in God's eyes. But with that comes a shaping of the community so they would have the right heart and the right attitude to the new things that they were to receive in their lives liberation. Is that making sense? So one of those things, there was a bunch of different laws that God brought at that time, but one of those was the idea of tithing. And tithing was the concept. The the word is an English, an old English word. It literally means tenth. But the idea was that you set aside a portion of your income as a first fruits faith offering to God. So whether that, whenever it is that you were to receive your income, whether that was on a weekly basis or in the biblical times in the Old Testament, it might be at the harvest time or something like that. You would set aside a specific amount and it was contractually, legally obligated for you to do this. To set aside a tenth of that everything that comes in as a, a tithe that was to be given as a faith offering to God. Now it's really important that you understand that this was a legal contractual offering obligation of God's people. And because of that, there were blessings and curses that came alongside of it. Now, now, the whole point of a tithe was uh, there were practical reasons for it and spiritual reasons for it. Let me break these down real quick. On the practical side in the Old Testament, the tithe was this idea that these tenth of everything that we have comes into the storehouse in the temple to be used for two practical purposes purposes. First of all, to provide for the Levite tribe in Israel to be able to be be fully 100% committed to serving the spiritual and religious life of all of the other tribes in Israel. When Israel came into the promised land in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, 11 of them received a portion of the land as their inheritance and their income and their wealth generating perspective. But one tribe, the Levites did not. The Levites were set aside to serve in the temple as the tribe that would serve the rest of the religious life of Israel. And so this tithing that came in, part of that went practically to keep the Levites alive, literally, so that they could serve the rest of Israel. That makes sense? The second practical reason was out of the overflow, the abundance of what was given, because once the the Levites were provided for, there was a lot of other uh, goods and finances left over. And that was to be used and distributed into the community to help the poor To help the vulnerable, to help the broken, the marginalized, those that were desperate in community. The the excess finances were were, were to be used practically to serve the poor in Israel's community. So the Levites on the one side and then the overflow to serve the poor. Making sense so far? Now there was a spiritual side to this as well. It wasn't just about what was practically the right thing to do. There was a spiritual side. And the spiritual side was the idea of worship and submission. God understood that when his people came out of slavery into a place of newfound freedom and where they were receiving material goods, there was a danger that they would shift their trust of God away from him and towards the material things that they earned and created for themselves. And so tithing was a way for God to build a spirit amongst his people where they would continue to say literally that God is the place that I trust for all of my needs. So my setting aside of a portion of my income right at the start of every month and giving that to God was a way of saying, God, you are ultimately the one that I trust to provide my needs. And when Israel failed to give their tithe, what it communicated to God was this. I don't ultimately trust you. Which is why God has a lot of strong things to say in the Old Testament when when Israel held back their tithe from him. God was like, I want to prove my faithfulness to you. I want to prove that, that I am trustworthy to you. So when you give to me your, your tithe as your first fruit, as a symbolic act of submission to me, I will prove to you my trustworthiness to you. I will give and replenish and help you and walk with you. I won't give up on you. I won't turn my back on you. I will open up my generosity to you and you will know that I am faithful This is why in Malachi, God says it specifically like this. He says, test me in this. It's the only thing in the Old Testament scripture that God says, test me on it. Test me that if you give me your tithe, will I not open up the storehouses of heaven and pour out my abundant blessings upon you? So there was this idea that that there was a spiritual idea that if I was to give to God, it was an act of prophetic trust that I trust him more than I trust my resources. God would be tested in that and pour out his blessing on his people, which in turn would cause them to want to be more faithful to God in their giving. And so there was this cycle that took place between God and his people that had blessings and curses attached to it as they showed their faithfulness and God responded in his faithfulness to them. All that making sense? Now we get to the New Testament and things change. Because in the New Testament, you see what happens is that everything gets reinterpreted through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. And so there are some things in the Old Testament law that didn't carry forward into the New Testament world of grace. But there were other things that carried forward, not in the kind of letter of the law, but in the spirit of that law. And tithing is one of the interesting things. Tithing is only mentioned twice in the whole of the New Testament. The legal contractual element of tithing that was linked to the Old Testament in Jesus Christ is gotten away with in the New Testament. The whole sense that I have this legal obligation, a contractual responsibility, you don't see that at all in the New Testament. The only two times when tithing is mentioned, it's specifically talking about an Old Testament story or an Old Testament moment. No, you don't get that in the New Testament. But here's the really important thing. Where you see in the New Testament a cessation on the contractual legal obligation reality of the tithe, what you see is an enhancement on the spirit of the tithe. Are you with me? So while, while the contract is gone, and the legal obligation and slavery to that is gone, there is actually enhancement on the joy of partaking in the giving that happens in relationship to God. This is why in Acts chapter 2, you see the church pouring out an abundant amount of their resources, bringing those resources, placing them at the feet of the apostles, so the apostles could then distribute those resources to those in need in the community, The same spirit of the Old Testament tithe, but now not done on a contractual tenth, but a way greater amount of that done in freedom, life, and joy. And here's the interesting thing that practical part of the Old Testament continues in the New Testament. When that money was brought to the apostles' feet, that money would have gone to help the apostles to continue to live full-time in serving Israel in the spread of the reality that Jesus is the Messiah and the birthing of the new church. And the overflow of what was given was used by the apostles to help those in need. So the same thing that was taking place in the Old Testament continues to take place in the New Testament as the apostles received what was given, enabled themselves to continue to minister and teach and spread the gospel, as well as taking care of the needs of the people around them. They learned this from Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus had given up his profession as a carpenter and had gone into a full time teaching ministry for about three years. And Luke tells us that wealthy women supported Jesus to be able to do that. Wealthy women would gather around him and support Paul himself. We often admire Paul and celebrate Paul because he's the one who. Was a tent maker? Well, absolutely. In Corinth, Paul made tents. And that was one of the ways that he was able to finance himself. But outside of Corinth, for the rest of the majority of Paul's ministry, he was supported by the churches, giving him income so that he could continue to flourish in what he was doing. Is this making sense? So the practical side of that element of the tithe, although the contractual obligation is gone, the practice and the practicalness of it continues in the New Testament, but it's the spirit of it, the spiritual importance of the giving that is the thing that is truly enhanced. In fact, I would argue this, not just enhanced, but completely revolutionized, and that's actually what I want to talk about most today, how the New Testament changes the spirit of the heart of our giving. And to do that, I want to jump back to the book of Philippians because we're in Philippians as a church over the last seven weeks. Uh, We've been embedded into it. It's been healthy for us. We know the context. And Philippians has a lot to say about our giving. And in fact, in Philippians, what Paul essentially does, and we've been talking in this series about a, a new way to pray or a new way to lead or a new way to have holiness. Well, what you also see in the book of Philippians is a new way to give. And this is what I want us to focus on a little bit with each other this morning, this new way to give. Now, we know from the context of Philippians, as we've been talking about over the last seven weeks, that Paul's in prison. We know that in prison with Paul, he's awaiting trial. And whilst in prison, there's no social welfare system to give him funds whilst he's there. He's relying on the support of the community to keep him alive whilst he's waiting for trial. And Philippians, the church in Philippi, was one of the churches that was giving money so that Paul would be alive and would flourish whilst he was in prison. And actually what Philippi did is they raised up one of their members, a guy called Epaphroditus, and they gave Epaphroditus all the money that they had saved up. And Epaphroditus goes to Paul in prison, which was in a completely different city. So he travels there and he brings Paul this gift from Philippi, this welcomed gift of finances so Paul would be able to survive in prison. And right at the end of the letter, he thanks them for this gift. But the way he thanks them is completely mind-blowing. And I want to open that up for you today as a way of hopefully encouraging us as we think about giving. Is everybody okay still? You alive? All right, here we go. Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 10 onwards. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you've not had the opportunity to show it. Now, Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. For I know what it is to be need, but I also know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, everything, through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you, notice this, to share, to partake together in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. In other words, no other church was giving to me at that time, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm actually looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what might be accredited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift that you've sent. These are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This is an absolutely stunning part of Paul's letter because he's actually completely reinventing the concept and the idea of giving. He honors Philippi for the fact that they were faithful in their giving to him. In fact, he, he kind of throws Thessalonica under the bus, the church there under the bus, because he's like, even when I was living in that church, they weren't supporting me. You guys were supporting me. You were the one who was sending me aid, right? So he's pretty full on with them about it, but he's, he wants to thank them. He wants to thank Epaphroditus and the reality that they have all this money uh, that's been coming into him. But very importantly, He says something, he teaches something here designed to help to disrupt the way they were currently thinking about their giving. Let me show you uh, the argument he makes. He says this, you guys have met my needs time and time again. This is pleasing to God. My God will meet all of your needs. Now, when we read that with our modern thinking and the New Testament church that we're a part of, we look at that and we think, well, that's not such a big deal. But actually, if you were to read this from that first century Greek or roman context that the church was embedded in, this was completely radical. He's saying to them, you gave money to me to help me to live. That was pleasing to God. So guess what? My God is going to respond in faithfulness now to you. Now, what is he actually saying? Well, I want you to see some words he uses here in verse 17 onwards. He says, he uses this word credited to your account, received full payment, and amply supplied. Now, these three phrases are specifically Greco Roman business words. Paul is using these words on purpose because he's trying to stir up some baggage that these words were associated with. Accredited to your account, full payments, amply supplied, words that were used within the business and social context of first century Greek or Roman life. And they always were creating a certain idea. And the idea was this, the concept of gift and reciprocity. This was something that was central to the Greco-Roman way of life. Let me explain it to you. Let's say, so Nate's sitting right here. Hi, Nate. How you doing? Good to see you. So let's say Nate invites me over to dinner at his house. And my wife and I, we go over to Nate's place, Nate and Christina, and we we sit down and we have a a wonderful meal with them. That's great. And we leave that time. Immediately, Chris and I, with the gift and reciprocity idea, would be thinking, okay, now we owe them a dinner right? Now we need to actually invite them over to our place for dinner. And so we arrange for them to come over the next week to our place for dinner, because we're feeling like we're a little bit in debt to them, and we invite them over. Now, here's the kicker thing with the Greco-Roman concept of gift and reciprocity. It's not just good enough for us now to invite them over for dinner, because if we did that, our gift is equal. We have to top their gift, So we're going to invite them over for dinner, and when they sit down, we're going to give them the best bottle of wine that we can afford, right? We're going to add that little cherry on the top that's going to sweeten the deal. Why? Because that means they're then in debt now again to us. And we know what's going to happen in the future. They're going to then invite us back to their place, and they're going to give us not one bottle, but two bottles of wine, and it's going to be great, Right? now we laugh but this was the greek or roman context of social relationships it was an incredibly difficult and complex relationship of one-upsmanship with each other all the time isn't it great that we don't act like this anymore in the modern culture come on guys come on let's be honest Right, We know what it's like within both, not just Chinese culture, but Western culture as well. We still play the game of reciprocity with us, and it creates in us this sense of debt and obligation. Paul, in writing to the church, wants to subvert this. This is why he doesn't say, you gave a gift to me to help me with my needs. I, therefore, am very grateful. Therefore, I owe you back. All right? Do you follow that? That's what Paul would have said if he was wanting to keep up with the Greek or Roman context. Instead he says, You gave a great gift to me for my needs. God was pleased with that gift. My God will now supply all your needs. He's subverting it all. Look at the look at the words. He he uses these words. He says, he says, um these gifts that you've given are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He actually, interestingly, brings up the Old Testament concept of sacrifice and fragrant offerings, the tithing concept from the Old Testament. He brings that in because he's trying to say, we don't live by these Greco-Roman concepts together anymore. We instead live under a different idea. And he's even willing to bring up the Old Testament tithe, but he's about to completely subvert that as well, because it's no longer about obligation it's about something new you see for Paul there was a new divine economy and this divine economy was different from everything we see in the world and Paul's passion was that the church would not get sucked in to an economy based on the world's thinking but would have a divine economy based on what God sees in this world let me teach on this real quick by telling you a little bit about transactional relationships in relation to giving and a Trinitarian relationship in relation to giving. Is everybody still okay? Are you tracking with this? Is this helpful for you? You have to say yes to these questions. I know, it's (laughs) weird. I say it every week, but it's uh, the reality. (laughs) Now, the transactional relationship to giving was the Greek or Roman concept. It was transactional debt and obligation, one-upsmanship. You give to me, I'm in debt to you. I better give to you so you're in debt to me. And then we can just play this little hierarchical relationship in our social relationship. That was the transactional relationship. And here's what Paul's thinking. He's like, we cannot be like that in the church. Because if we're like that in the church, we're not showing the world what God is truly like. You see, Paul understood that if we had a transactional relationship amongst ourselves in the church, ultimately what that says is that we have a transactional relationship with God as well. And the picture of God that that places at the center of the universe is basically the idea of a divine accountant. Think about this for a second. If you're an accountant in here, please apologize for the next five minutes that I'm about to say. But A divine accountant, a slightly grumpy God that sits up there in the sky somewhere who has a scorecard for every single person in this room. And you're trying to, there's a left-hand column and a right-hand column. In the left-hand column is all the bad stuff that you do. In the right-hand column, there's all the good stuff that you do. And because God is this grumpy, divine accountant, you're living your faith, you're living your life to try to get more on the good column than on the bad column. And if you've got more on the good column than on the bad column, you can expect the blessings of God. Are you with me? But every time we act and every time we do something, whether it's coming to church, whether it's giving money to the church, whether it's whatever we do, giving our time and energy, if we have a transactional relationship with God, if we see Him like this divine accountant, we're trying to store up the goody bank on the good side of the column so that it outweighs the bad side of the column so that we can feel good about ourselves and think that God feels good about us. Yeah. When you give with that mindset, I'm going to say it this strongly we dishonor the character of God amongst us. And Paul wants to flip that on its head and say there is another way because the reality is if our relationship is transactional, the result of that is always going to be feelings of guilt, shame, and obligation. And I want if you hear nothing else in what I've been preaching, I want you to hear this. I want to free you today from guilt, shame, and obligation when it comes to your giving here at the Vine. Because if that's our precept, if that's our concept, then we're in a transactional relationship with one another and with God, and I don't think that's what God wants. Instead, it's this Trinitarian idea. Paul always brings things back to the idea that the God is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That there is this in God Himself, the one God. There are three persons. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but constantly one community together. And in that community, it's a community of endless, self-giving, self-sacrificial, other-centered giving and love towards the other within the community. And Paul realizes that what sits at the center of the universe is not the grumpy accountant with a scorecard, but this endless cycle of self-living, self-giving, self-loving unity seen in the beautiful thing of the Trinity. And Paul takes that rather distant theological concept and says the church should look like this. Like if we're going to be a community that represents the heart of God, then it has to be in this idea of an endless cycle of giving and other-centered self-love, loving the other around us. And Paul says that's the way it should be. So when you read in Acts chapter 2 that the church was selling their fields and bringing the money in and laying it at the apostles' feet, it wasn't because they were contractually, legally obligated to do it. It wasn't because their pastor was standing up making them feel guilty about it. It was because they realized that there was another way to live, that God has created a new world where there's a trinity that sits at the heart of it, this endless cycle of self-giving love. And who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And so they bring their resources to the apostles' feet because their hearts are pumping. And they're saying, there is great joy that I get to be a part of a new economy, a new way of understanding that it's not about debt and obligation and who's got the better hand. It's about the giving of all of myself, knowing that God is able to give and supply all my needs. This is why Paul says here that Christ responds... He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, you cannot outgive God. Now, this is not prosperity gospel. This is not if you give $10, God's going to multiply and give you 30 back, right? This is the idea, though, that there is a new economy where God has these riches and abundance and He wants to pour it out on His faithful people. And in the reciprocity relationship, the transactional relationship, you're always trying to remember who's the one who's got the power in this relationship at this point. In the Trinitarian relationship, you're no longer trying to work out the power. You lose track of who owes who. You're just happy that you're a part of it, that you get the gift this idea of the Trinitarian way of giving in the church is throughout all of Paul's writings. Let me give you a couple of quick verses as I close. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 7. Each person should give whatever they have decided in their heart to give. It starts in the heart, not reluctantly. In other words, you should feel joy in being a part of this new economy, a new way of life, but also not under compulsion. You should be freed from obligation and debt and guilt because we're no longer operating with a, a divine accountant in the transaction. Way. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God, notice the cycle here, and God is able to make all the grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you are abounding. In good work. Look at the cycle. You bring your tithe and your offering and your love to God in this community called the church. And God makes all grace abound to you, which overflows in you to more grace abounding to him. And you get lost in this cycle of endless self-giving. And it is a wonderful picture of grace. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Paul gets practical with his church here. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that I'm, when I come to you, no collections in addition to that will need to be made. Paul's trying to liberate his church from a formula, but he's not adverse to giving some practical advice. And so I want to finish this with some practical advice, but don't think that I'm now teaching you a formula. Are you with me? Are you with me? He says this, First of all, he says your giving needs to be periodic. On the first day of every week, well, that was what was right for them in the way that they were paid. Maybe for us it might be the first of the month. It might be the first quarter when we get our dividends in or get a bonus or whatever it might be. But whenever we are regularly paid, there is a regular response. It's periodic. We make that a regular commitment of our hearts. It's also personal. Notice what he says. Each one of you—I love this. Nobody else can be generous for you. No one else can give for you. You, uh, each one of you, are being called to partake in this beautiful new economy of grace and love and joy and sacrifice towards one another. So each one of you—I think sometimes the temptation in a church the size of the vine is to think that others will carry the heavy weights. Each one of you, it's a personal thing. He then says it is a planned thing. Should set aside a sum of money. There should be intention in our giving. It's not, oh yeah, shoot, it's offering today. What do I have in my wallet? Here's a hundred bucks. There's an intention to it, a planned perspective in it i i want to turn my heart towards god in this new economy this new way to give not under compulsion not under legalism not under some guilt but under this beautiful idea that if i'm intentional with the first fruits of what i have that's the best way that i can honor god and then finally it's proportionate in a in keeping with their income there's a proportionate amount of giving the reality is those that earn more have the ability to give more So this is a challenge to those who are wealthier within a church community to say that your giving should be in proportionate to your income. But it's also a challenge to the lower income earners of a community because it doesn't let them off. In whatever income that you are receiving, whether a lot or a little, you give generously without compulsion and guilt because you want to be a part of this great new economy that God has created. You want to see the church alive and flourishing, and you do it in proportion to what God has done to you. And here's the crazy thing. As you sow, as Paul says, those that sow generously reap generously, there's this idea of the cyclical nature of how God moves and has his way amongst us. So I hope you see that the question I often get asked is this. The question is this. Under New Testament grace, should I still give 10% of my income to the church? I hear that question all the time. And I hope now at the end of this message you realize that that's a painfully flawed question. Because if we're asking that question, we're still caught up in the divine accountant. And transactional nature. Because that question essentially is, what's the minimum amount of money that I can give to appease God and Andrew? When instead, perhaps our question should be, do I really get to be a part of this? Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of this? And so I give. Can we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we are really grateful. Grateful that you have taken us from slavery to freedom. And in our freedom, we have grace. This joy of recognizing that everything we have comes from you. And that you call us to be stewards of what we have received. But Lord, we don't want to very quickly fall into the trap that the church in Philippi could fall into. A sense of reciprocity in our relationship with you. A sense of our giving being tied to that Old Testament contractual legal obligation. Lord, I'm so grateful that we are freed from the contract, but are enhanced in the Spirit. And Lord, that is our challenge. To think whether our giving practices, whether to the church or elsewhere, our spending habits, whether what it is that we do with our finances is driven more by the divine accountant, contractual, transactional relationship. Or whether we are really, truly operating in the freedom that comes from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A Trinitarian picture of the world, where in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have the perfect model of what community looks like and that in this community at the Vine Church we would want to stand with one another freely giving and freely receiving not playing one-upmanship with you God but celebrating the joy that comes in a God who is able to supply every need father i pray that you would shake up our culture that you would challenge us deeply and you would release us into this grace with joy in our hearts, that we would literally find ourselves saying, wow, I get to be a part of this. And that whether it's our time, our talents, our gifts, resources, yes, our finances, we would bring it to you, not counting beans, but bring it to you, overflowing with joy. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Everyone says. Would you stand with me? I would love for us just to finish today by responding in joy as we worship our Father.